has noticed our proliferating Zafus up here. <laughs> Truth is that Rodney and I all week have been sitting on Zafus that just don't work for us. <laughs> Finally today we found a Zafu each. <laughs> that works. So if anybody's short of a cushion, please. <laughs> This evening I uh, kind of want to change track a little bit in the Dharma talk this evening. And yet also uh, really segue into the, you know, also draw back on the tracks that we've been following. The Buddha talks about three wise intentions that are really actually the embodiment of wise or right view, wise understanding. They're the intentions of renunciation, of loving kindness, and of compassion. So these three wise intentions are drawing on wise understanding, and in turn, They are informing our speech, our actions, our choices, our thoughts. Now, the way that they're presented is that really loving kindness and compassion in some ways are made possible by renunciation, by letting go. Letting go of self-cherishing, of self-view, of defensiveness, of aversion, that that kind of renunciation that in very real ways we've been exploring in our practice here, that the fruit of that, we might say, the fruition of that is in the possibilities of kindness and compassion that emerge and that truly do transform our lives. And when the Buddha speaks about loving kindness and compassion, he speaks about the boundlessness of these qualities. The boundlessness, the vastness, the unconditional, um, kind of foundational vastness of our capacities for kindness and compassion. So this evening I'd like to focus on this third wise intention, which is compassion, said to be very much the reason why we practice, but also said to be the very very essence of the practice. In many ways, compassion is really communicated as being the very essence of spiritual awakening. And that if our path and our practice is really dedicated to awakening and to freedom, we're really asked to understand suffering, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to its end. And that wisdom and compassion together are really the two pillars of this awakening and understanding, very much interwoven in every step of our path and every step of our journey to understanding and to finding a way in truth to heal suffering. If we do that, to understand suffering is also to understand compassion and to know what it means to practice and to live in the light of compassion. And we are encouraged in this teaching to really let compassion be our most deep, our deepest motivation and aspiration. There's a a dedication uh, from uh, a teacher in the Tibetan tradition I think really embodies that kind of motivation. He says, may I be a protector for those in danger, a guide for travelers on the way. 
May I be a boat or a bridge for all those who wish to cross the water. May I be a lamp for those who need light. May I be a place of rest for those who are tired. May I be a doctor in the medicine and may I be the nurse for all the sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. Now, compassion begins, I think, for us in the very same place that most of us begin our journey, which is, in truth, in an awareness of suffering. Also, an understanding that not all suffering can be fixed or avoided. An understanding that suffering is not a mistake or a punishment or a personal failure. And the question, I think, that arises from that awareness of suffering is, is what does it mean, actually, to heal suffering in ourselves, in the world? How can suffering be responded to and embraced? Is there even a possibility of bringing suffering to an end? And my sense is that these are, in many ways, the kind of timeless questions of every spiritual path, of every spiritual life. In Pali, the word for compassion is karuna, and it translates as a trembling heart, or a heart that trembles in the face of suffering. So what is really described in that is compassion not being an emotion or even a particular feeling, but it describes this very awake, open, spacious, and unshakable heart. But it is also a wise heart. It's also a heart that is so deeply rooted in, in, in a keen awareness of interconnectedness and interdependence of all things. And compassion is also rooted, or it is actually in some ways a heart of fearlessness. It's not afraid of suffering. It's not afraid to look suffering in the eye. But also, it's not afraid, because in many ways, compassion deeply understands the emptiness of all views and all positions of self and other. A compassion in this teaching is not presented as being a particular destination, but as a practice, a cultivation, an awareness. It's presented not as being even a noun, but as a verb. I I feel that we could say that compassion is probably one of the most meaningful embodiments of emotional maturity and freedom. Dalai Lama once said that if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. It's probably pretty evident that for our hearts to tremble, they first need to be awake. They need to be connected. They need, we need to be aware for, for, to learn what it means to be open and steadfast in the face of suffering and pain, rather than following our usual reactions of flight and abandonment and disconnection. A lot of our journey is actually finding the ways that we can stay near to suffering and pain. And that includes everything that we've been doing here over these days. You know, in that path of mindfulness, we're encouraged to contemplate the body internally and externally. To contemplate the story of our body and the story of all bodies to contemplate feeling internally and externally, to contemplate our heart and to contemplate the landscape of all hearts. 
to contemplate our mind internally and externally. And, you know, there's tons of arguments in different Buddhist traditions about what that line actually means. So I'm just giving you my view. <laughs> to contemplate the mind internally and externally. And for me, that means that as we contemplate our mind, we do in truth contemplate the life of all minds. And I find those words, to contemplate internally and externally, is really an encouragement, I feel, to, to reach beyond the boundaries of our own stories, to know our stories well, but to know that they are in truth a microcosmic view of all stories. It's, it's really an encouragement, I think, to, to inch our way towards an understanding of interconnectedness and compassion, the encouragement to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves, and simply to be steadfast in the magnitude of suffering that is held within all the stories. Contemplating internally, externally. It's a wonderful line. It says, the world is not made of atoms, but it is made of stories. And the world as we know it is very often a world of interwoven stories. Think of all of the stories that are held within this room. I mean, we are all, of course, unique in many ways. Yet there are so many universal themes that run through all of our stories. If we take moments to reflect upon our own story, our stories of loss and disappointment that we've been asked to meet and embrace, the stories about the way that we've suffered through rejection or blame, the heartache of despair or loneliness or fear. Think of the story of your body from the time you were born. And all this body has had to meet in terms of change and pain and illness, the story of what your body may be, of your body right now. We have the story of our mind with its joys, but also with its torments of obsession and judgment and anxiety. Reflect in your story of the variety and the range of afflictions as well as moment of happiness that the world has really brought. And then what it is like just to expand your awareness in this room beyond the boundary of your own story. A little bit get that sense again of, you know, that person who sits beside you or the person who sits in front of you, the person who sits beside you, who you've never spoken to. And is there anyone, do we imagine that there is anyone in this room that has been exempt, exempted? from hardship? Is there anyone in this room who's not been asked to meet their own measure of adversity and challenge? Is there even one person in this room who, who doesn't know what it means to, to feel lonely or to feel afraid? You know, is there one person in this room who's never experienced pain or illness or death? And we can you know, just continue to expand that contemplation through all of life. And we, we really get a sense of the story of life, which does not in any way diminish or lessen our own story. But it's really an invitation to understand the tapestry of suffering in a way to get a sense of the size of the cloth. There's a, a beautiful story from the time of the Buddha about a young woman called Kisa Gotami who was born into a very poor family and kind of, you know, was very much, had very little. And then 
sort of married upwardly, but was much kind of despised and looked down upon by her, the family she married into, until she had a son, until she bore a son. And then, tragically, the child died. And absolutely distraught with grief, Kisugotami went to the Buddha cradling the body of her son in her arms, begging the Buddha to bring her son back to life. And the Buddha, seeing that the depth of her grief and the kind of madness that had come with that grief, he asked her to go out into the village and to knock on the door of every house and to bring back a mustard seed from the house where no one had ever died. And Kisugotami went frantically from house to house in the village, knocking on door after door, saying, is, there a, is this a house where no one has died? And every time... She was answered, no, someone has, we loved has died here. And she went back to the Buddha. She actually saw the compassion in this. She went back to the Buddha, holding her son and saying to him, dear one, I thought that you alone had been overtaken by death. And now I know you are not the only one. And it was said that Kisugotami in that moment saw all the mothers and all the fathers through time who had cradled their dead and their sick children. This is not the whole story of compassion. Is there, of course, any one of us here who has not experienced times in our life when our hearts and minds have really been shattered by ignorance and confusion, times when we've spoken or acted out of fear or rage or hatred, and when we expand that awareness and sense the world around us, it is hard to find anyone who has not done the same. And again, it's not the whole story. Can we understand that we live in a world where all beings are actually united in their longing for safety, from unhappiness, from danger, to be protected, united in their longing to be free from pain and fear? And understand that shared longing to be cared for and understood and loved. Can we see even that the anger and the terror, even the ignorance of others in this life, not as theirs, but as ours too? As if we are all part of a single organism, born, living, breathing, dying, and really in a way doing our best to find our way, all of us to peace and to happiness and to freedom. It is, in truth, this understanding of interconnectedness on a very profound, a very experiential level, and in go, go of this small world of I, of self. It is that understanding of inter interconnectedness that is really the ground of a heart of genuine kindness and compassion that enables us to live a compassionate life. Milarepa, he said, just as I instinctively reach out to care for and heal a wound in my leg as part of this body, why should I not reach out instinctively to heal and care for a wound in another wherever it exists as part of this body? I think out of this understanding of interconnectedness, it's not that we try even to be compassionate, but there, there rises a very natural responsiveness, embracing, that there is simple in a way, that there is suffering. There is a trembling of the heart. 
there is the instinctive reaching out, the gesture of unconditional compassion, a response that doesn't pass through the filters that says, you know, this is worthy suffering or this is unworthy suffering. Doesn't filter through the responses of, you know, do I or you deserve compassion? Are you good enough? There is no blame, no hierarchies. Now, the Dalai Lama has said that he feels that compassion is the radicalism of our time. And I, I really reflect on that a, a lot to, to understand that what is really radical about compassion. And my understanding is that the radicalism of compassion is because it is so swimming against the tides of, of self-protection and self-cherishing. Two of the most pro- common, predictable themes of our time. You know, how much we hear that in our life, you know, take care of yourself, you know, look out for number one, you know, get what you need, and if you've got a little bit of energy look I left over, you know, see maybe to someone else's well-being. The, the, the encouragement to fear others, to pursue the perfect life. And unfortunately, more and more we equate happiness with just having more and more pleasant feelings and experiences and sensations and events in our life. That comes to be almost the definition of happiness. Now, of course, it is very, very human to want to turn away from the unpleasant. But the difficulty arises is because we see that happiness is born of getting rid of suffering, of somehow winning the battle against the unpleasant. You know, that's how we often start to see happiness. We have to win the battle against the challenging or the painful or or the unpleasant in some ways. And that battle, you know, if that's the battle, if that's the war that we're waging with life or waging with the present moment, in truth, there's, there's very little ground for compassion to really flower because the birth of compassion really lies in our willingness to embrace suffering and not just to get rid of it. It's very, it's very important to acknowledge here, because not to get into another kind of cycle of blame, but to really acknowledge that self-consciousness, self-cherishing, self-protection, and all the anxieties that arise from that fear you know, they're kind of part of the human condition, the human dilemma. They're not shameful or bad, but they're there. But I think the most important understanding is really to see that in truth, that our attachment and preoccupation with ourselves doesn't actually make us happy. It doesn't actually produce what we want it to produce. It's a kind of exercise in futility. You know, and I think it's really kind of like helpful to see that, important to see that. In fact, the the preoccupation with self-cherishing, with me and I, as we see often enough, it actually makes us suffering. Now, the path of compassion is not an encouragement to move from selfing and (laughs) self-centeredness to self-loathing and self-denial. You know, it's not an encouragement to move towards sort of blaming and shaming ourselves for being self-centered, but really to look very fearlessly and wisely at this whole little contracted world of me and I and mine. Look at it fearlessly. Does it lead to suffering? Or does it lead to the end of suffering? Or is it suffering? in itself. I think it's out of that, that kind of contemplation that we really find the spaciousness and the understanding to hold, hold this whole tight, contracted world just a little bit more lightly and also to widen our circle of concern. 
to be deeply concerned with the well-being of all beings. In many ways, really, to know that my happiness is, in truth, directly linked to your happiness. That my fear is directly linked to your fear. And in many ways, my freedom is really knitted together with yours. And a friend of mine once said that, that we cannot pursue awakening just for ourselves, that we can only participate in the awakening of the world. There's something so, so lovely about that. And in truth, you see that the, really the depth of happiness in our life is directly related to the depth of our sense of connectedness to really being part of the family of all things. And the Dalai Lama, again, he, he, said, I, he said, I found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating compassion for all puts the mind at ease. A compassion actually is also radical because it is so opposite to our tendencies to, to fear and to resist and to avoid suffering, the tendencies to turn them away. We might say that the tendency of compassion is to incline our hearts towards suffering. Now, Dogen, who was a wonderful teacher, he was asked, what is the mind of compassion? He asked his teacher. His teacher answers, it's a soft and flexible mind. Dogen said, what is this soft mind? His teacher answered, it's the willingness to let go of your body and mind. So how do we cultivate this soft, this receptive, flexible, fluid, spacious mind? Well, first we sit in the center of this world with all its suffering. Well, fortunately that happens to be right where we are just now. And every human being sits in the same place with us, in the center of the same world. We sit with all the anger and pain and hardship we meet in our lives, and we know that all beings are sitting and doing just the same. And you know, it's where the Buddha sat when he sat underneath the Bodhi tree. As Rebandison, he once said, he said, Buddhas don't sit on the edge of suffering. They don't sit in the suburbs. They sit downtown. <laughs> and we're already there. We're already there. We just need to open our hearts to the truth of that. And this, too, is where, again, where compassion is radical because we're asked to find that same fearlessness of a Buddha. It doesn't mean that there's no fear. There's plenty of fear. Fear of being overwhelmed, fear of getting lost, fear that our heart is not vast enough. But fear can be there without us kind of, you know, picking it up and running with it. And we begin to see, when we do that, we close down, that fear can be there without us becoming fearful. And fear and, and self-protection are so wedded together in this terrible marriage, you know, and, and I don't know, well, I do know, actually, you know, culturally, how we're just more and more encouraged to live a fearful life. You know, to walk out our door every moment as if the world is about there, willing to devour us, you know, to, to be suspicious of everything, to, to try and avoid everything, to <coughs> try to ensure an impossible safety. You know, life happens. None of us will ever have that. And to try and find us will only make us more and more isolated in that small world of suspicion and mistrust and blame and hatred. 
that so solidifies the story of self and other and the endless alienation and conflict that's part of our world. And we know, I think, in many ways that the end of that alienation and mistrust begins nowhere else but with, our own, with us, with our own hearts. We cannot wait for the world to change, for everyone to agree with us, that the end of alienation mistrust must begin with us. In a way, it's a kind of spiritual politics of this time. You know, what, which choice are we going to make? Which choice are we going to make? It is a radical act to renounce the pathways of fear, the thoughts of ill will and blame, and to connect again and again with that soft mind, the soft mind. I listened to a Tibetan monk speak who was imprisoned for 21 years, mostly in solitary confinement, beaten, tortured, daily, daily abused. We need to remember there are people in this world who that is happening to right now. Every day his life was threatened, and yet he emerged after all these years, and, and, and now he kind of travels around, and he, he speaks to many people about the torment of these years. And the one thing you notice is his heart is so completely unbroken and intact. Never speaks about revenge, and never speaks about despair, and never speaks about hatred, you know, and the Dalai Lama said to him, were you ever really in danger of losing your life? And he said, many times. He said, but my moment of greatest danger was the moment I was in danger of losing compassion for my jailers. It seemed to suggest that he felt many things other than compassion. Who wouldn't? But despite the range of those feelings, he had this commitment. He had this commitment to having a heart unshaken, a heart not governed by anger. It enabled him to do much more than survive, enabled him to, to really nurture that sense of nobility. And there's a, a biographical sketch someone wrote about this monk. It said, an appearance almost of timidity on first meeting, a voice so quiet it might be a whisper. He could easily pass unnoticed until you meet his gaze, a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything, seen beyond the suffering he has experienced, beyond all the evil and abuse he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings. You know, in, in truth, it was my encounter with people very much like this that was very much the beginning of my own path. You're living in a community of refugees as a teenager uh, in India. I could never understand how it could be that way. I, couldn't, I could never, couldn't understand how these people I was living with and talking with and... and and practicing with every day that every single one of them was there because they had experienced unbearable suffering, the death of their families, torture, abuse, everything you could imagine or can't imagine even, they had experienced. And yet the, this presence of, of unshakability, this presence of kindness and gentleness and compassion, you know, for me this was like, how can this be? I mean, for sure, I knew these people knew something I did not know. And that was why I began to practice. Because to know, to really see that that is possible, it's not just an abstract, it's not just a fine idea, it is actually really possible, and people are doing this in this world as we sit here. 
The compassionate heart has that softness, it has that flexibility, the receptivity, the vulnerability, but it also needs to balance that with wisdom and discernment. Because there are times, I know, when we do feel in danger of becoming lost in suffering, when we feel in danger of losing our ground and stability. And I think that soft and compassionate heart, it really needs like the vigilance and the wisdom and the protection of mindfulness. How to surround suffering with that, that wisdom. I mean, anger and blame and, and anxiety and fear, they do and can arise in the face of suffering. And we need to know when they're arising and passing and when we're starting to get lost in those currents. And there's no shame in stepping back in learning to pause, to breathe out for a moment, to know when there's a wisdom, actually, in in recovering our ground, not pushing away, but really finding the way that we can meet such situations without being lost. Sometimes we need to reclaim the steadiness of a grounded heart, but that is part of a training in a compassion that is boundless and unconditional. Now I just want to look for a moment at at the places where compassion most easily stumbles and falters. And in my understanding, there's two areas. One place where compassion easily falters is in that rocky ground of the seeming utter impossibility of bringing suffering to an end. And the second place where compassion easily falters is in the face of ignorance. When we face those who who perpetrate suffering, who inflict harm, those who seem to have so lost their way that they simply manifest a kind of violence and cruelty and heedlessness that doesn't seem to deserve compassion. Now, one thing in this path, we are asked to imagine or to acknowledge the seeming impossibility of ending suffering, but to act as if it were possible to do so. That's the paradox. We imagine or or sense, acknowledge, perhaps the impossibility, but every moment we act as if it is possible to end suffering. Now, empathy has a lot to do with this ground of compassion. Now, none of us can actually directly experience the, the feelings, the hearts, the mind of another person, but we do know we live with the same mind and heart with its capacity for hatred and love and fear. In the Bodhisattva vow, it says, although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. When our hearts are open, and you know, this is some ways the painfulness of awareness the painfulness of sensitivity, that when our hearts are open, we are faced actually with the reality of so much pain and sorrow in this world. It seems so intractable that we can't see the beginnings or the endings of the terrible violence of war or, you know, the end of children who die so needlessly of, of illness or hunger every day. But don't we also meet the seeming so intractable in our, in our own lives, you know, the obsessions as we seem to have inherited from somebody else, you know, that linger for years, the chronic illnesses that don't go away, the, the, the tendencies of our heart towards anger and fear that seem so embedded. Now, sometimes people speak of compassion fatigue. Now, I don't think that that happens just because we're facing suffering that seems impossible to end. I think compassion fatigue happens because we we see compassion as a solution 
as a way to fix something. We have an agenda of change. And then when that get, kind of runs out or gets disappointed, we say, oh, no, it doesn't, I can't do anything. I can't make any difference. I think we're asked again and again to find a way of being in this world, a depth of compassion. They really ask for nothing in return. To act and live and speak in a way as if truly possible to liberate all beings and to heal all suffering in the face of seeming impossibility. Taking our seat in compassion you know, when you've gone in the walking room, you probably notice that, that wooden, sta- wooden figure at the end. It's a, it's a figure of Kuan Yin, said to be the Buddha of compassion. Appears in many, many different forms, right from the early days of, of Buddhism. And translated, Kuan Yin means one who listens to the cries of the world. And who listens to the cries of the world. Gently aligning ourselves in listening with the commitment to protect and heal. Protect our own hearts from despair and ill will and fear. And uh, just as we protect others. And in doing that, lessening the mountain of suffering. Protecting all life. It's that kind of commitment like the Tibetan monk says, you know, my time of greatest danger the moments I was in danger of losing my compassion for my jailers. Now, compassion for those who are helpless, innocent, is not so hard, or see, not as hard. But the second place where compassion easily falters and disappears In the face of those who perpetrate violence and suffering and grief and anger, cruelty, the power in the face of those who abuse or kill, even those who in much less harmful or extreme ways, it's hard, isn't it, to feel compassion for those who judge us, you know, denounce us, belittle us in some way. This is like really hard practice. In the Vasudhimaga, you know, one of the teaching, one of the, the kind of commentaries in this tradition, it describes this way of practicing compassion. It says, first, bring into your heart all of those who are innocent and blameless. The child in need, the child abandoned, the elderly person alone and in, in lonely in a nursing home those who are ill. Bring into your heart all those who are blameless and innocent, those who are caught in natural tragedy or, you know, environmental tragedies of drought or floods, caught in wars that have nothing to do with. Bring all of those into your hearts and feel your heart melt. And then bring into your heart all of those who cause pain. And understand in those who cause pain, the suffering is twofold. The suffering is the consequence of the violence and the cruelty and the ignorance. And the pain of their own alienated hearts. I know when we face those, this is the hardest of all practices. But without it, what does compassion mean? If compassion cannot enfold ignorance, really, what does it mean? I know in the face of those who cause harm, it feels like, you know, rejection or, 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 or retribution is more appropriate than compassion. But then, are we not then part of the tapestry of rage? Are we then not part of the tapestry of violence? What does compassion mean in the face of ignorance? I mean, certainly it doesn't mean passivity. Kuan Yin often appears armed with bows and arrows and shields, this armed warrior, one who says no to the causes of suffering. 
and saying no to the causes of suffering is really probably the definition of an ethical life. But uh, Because compassion is certainly not condoning, reaching out to protect where protection can be offered. But compassion is also understanding about ignorance. You know, I have a, a grandniece. She's a, d- a delightful little girl. You know, she's three-year-old, you know, bubbly little sweethearts. And, um, I, you know, I love her to bits, but she's also a child of her conditions, you know. And, and like, some of her first words after Mama and Papa were, kill it. You know, and then she lives in the countryside, you know, and I, I go out for a walk with her. And, you know, whenever she sees anything move, smaller than her, she says, kill it, kill it. And, you know, it breaks my heart, actually. It does really, really break my heart. But, uh, you know, does it stop me loving her? No. It, it is ignorance, at least that if she grows up, when she grows up to be a young woman or a woman, you know, she might still be saying, kill it, kill it, should I hate her? Because the ignorance is born of conditions. Certainly, ignorance is also not intractable. It really can be understood. But aren't there many, many conditions necessary for the understanding of, and dissolving of ignorance? This is such hard practice. It is such hard practice. But when we're about to reject or disdain or condemn someone that we don't know, think of them as that small child who's never known a different way of being and then kill it. Ignorance is also suffering. It is suffering. That is why we practice and compassion does not mean ignorant, meet ignorance with more ignorance. It does. We do everything we can, again, to bring about the end of that suffering. But our compassion and truth needs to be equal in size to the ignorance we meet in this world, inwardly and outwardly. And Rio can, he once said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. I was first taught about this from my Tibetan teacher who'd seen many of his young monks killed in front of him. And he was, he, his mother was killed in the village where he grew up. And I used to argue with him all the time about this. And whenever I would argue with him, he just had these words. He would say, swallow the blame. And I'd say, but, 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 you know, but, but, you know, those people over there and those people over there. And he'd say, swallow the blame. And I'd say, but that's just suppression. And that's just, that's just suppression. He'd say, swallow the blame. And, you know, and I'd say, but if I swallow the blame, somebody's going to get away with it. Swallow the blame. And I really found it hard to understand that, you know, because, I mean, did swallow the blame mean that I didn't act wisely in this world? That wasn't what he was saying at all. Did swallow the blame mean that I didn't do all that I could to protect uh, people who needed protection, to reach out to end suffering? It didn't mean that at all. Did swallowing the blame lead me to a life of passivity and blindness and, and, and turning away? Not at all. You know, he, he, like, encouraged the armed warrior. But swallowing the blame is about understanding the nature of ignorance. Compassion is, I think, part of acknowledging that ignorance is part of the mandala of suffering just as much as a broken heart or as an ailing body. And compassion knows no boundaries in the suffering it can acknowledge. If there was no suffering, no ignorance, there would be no need for compassion. Even if compassion falters in the face of violence or abuse, it doesn't have to fail. You know, Dalai Lama once said, he said, I cannot pretend to practice compassion all the time. 
but it gives me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside, I realize nothing is more valuable, beneficial, or transforming. That is all. That is all. And I think in the face of ignorance, we can begin to discover a depth of compassion we never even knew was possible for us. Sometimes said that true prayer becomes possible when all doors are closed and our heart has turned to stone. Because that really, on that level, it, we're really speaking about the liberation of the heart through compassion, which is one of the doorways to liberation that the Buddha speaks about. The liberation of the heart through compassion. Understanding what that might mean for us, what it can mean in our world to cultivate this vast and spacious heart that can tremble, that can respond, that is truly dedicated to the end, to the healing of all suffering and sorrow. We have a moment quietly together. It's a walking period before the last group sitting. <clears throat>